Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study, the podcast where we read the Bible as a source of inspiration and strength to help you live into God's abundant vision for your life and for the world. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Liberation Bible Study. I am Alex Patchen McNeil, your host. And I'm really thrilled to have with me today my collaborative reader as Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa to join with us in this text around 1 Corinthians. Robin, I'd love to have you introduce yourself and your work and identities and identities that you may bring to even reading this text. Great. It's so good to be here, Alex. Thanks so much for the invitation. You know, I am trained as a theologian. I have a PhD in theology and ethics. Um, I like to say that I do constructive philosophical theology. So I, I like to mess and deal with ideas in constructive ways and then theologize about ideas. I read the Bible as a theologian. Um, I'm not a biblical scholar. Um, and so I'm really excited about this text today to read it theologically and to see what sort of construction comes from it. I identify as a non-binary trans person. I'm a mixed race Latinx. I'm born of a Mexican woman, not of this country, and an Anglo father. I negotiate race in interesting ways. I'm a light-skinned Latinx person. I have white passing privilege. I'm deeply committed to anti-racism. I'm deeply committed to black-brown solidarity. And all of that really animates my work in the world as an activist theologian. I've spent really really probably the past eight years um, doing various speaking gigs, but full-time for the past three years, thinking out loud, theologizing out loud, and really bringing together um, the question of activism with theology, and really seeking to reframe theology as activism, and how as church-going people, or people of faith, or spiritual people, or religious people, however you identify or don't identify, how do the questions around spirituality, religion, theology, and ethics inform our activism? So that's sort of the, the work that I do in the world. I wrote a book on activist theology that will be published by Fortress. I'm revising right now, slow going, it's labor. <laughs> um, so I forgot to mention my pronouns, um, which are they, them, there. I just feel like it's important to bring it all to the table. Super excited to be a collaborative reader and to see what sort of liberation and resilience and resistance can come from this Corinthians passage. Fabulous. Thank you, Robin. We've gotten to work together in a number of contexts and I always appreciate the wisdom and insight that you bring in constructing meaning out of whatever it is that we're taking on. I have a practice of introducing myself as well because our identities shift and the ways we approach the reading also inform us in each and every given day. So I am Alex Patton McNeil, serving as the Executive Director of More Light Presbyterians. My pronouns are he and him. I identify as a white, Southern, transgender man. And I bring to this text a history of growing up around a community of people who saw some of the unliberative things in this Corinthians passage not the one necessarily we're reading today, but 1 Corinthians as a whole around conversations around women, a history and legacy of, of slavery, the prescriptive way that Paul may have written about that. 
And so I'm excited to delve into this text in particular from a place of resistance and liberation, because I do think it has something really beautiful to offer us that I hadn't noticed before. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It's my favorite um, interpretation. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Robin, I'm curious as you read the passage just now and as you, how would you describe what's going on in this passage and how it sits within the context of what's around it? Yeah, I mean, you know, Paul is a complicated figure in the New Testament and I sometimes like to think about reading Paul against Paul's self. Paul, um, the writer of First Corinthians, conceivably, I think we need to think about what was happening in those moments. You know, the, the letter to the church in Corinth, the first letter to the church in Corinth, is animated by a lot of different things. The question of how to be in community and how to love, to, you know, towards the middle of the book. But this, this first chapter, the very first verse, starts out with some really interesting things, foolishness, wisdom, juxtaposing the Greeks and the Jews. And as someone who reads, you know, the Bible, who reads the Bible as a theologian and reads it theologically, I often think about, you know, there's a, there's a term in Greek, oikonomia, which refers to the house. And I was talking with a dear friend of mine last night um, and we were talking about the Holy Spirit and sort of Kairos moment and whatnot. And, and I, so I want to bring in this metaphor of the house and that as LGBTQ people, we are often displaced from the house for who we are, for seemingly foolishness, for being on the wrong side of whatever issue. And yet the oikonomia, right, the house, and what is also part of the house regardless of who is displaced from the house, is that the spirit always moves through the house. That's the plumb line. And so as I think about this passage, I think about what is the spirit that is animating this passage? 
And how might we understand that spirit as both a spirit of resistance, a spirit of resilience, and a spirit of liberation? So we are living in what I call the tyranny of the now. Uh, our political theater is a real shit show. It's concerning. Like just everything that is happening is concerning. Our government seems, it just seems foolish right now. It seems what was intended to be um, the greatest democracy of the world has now become the laughingstock of a globalized network society. And it all seems foolish. The other thing that comes to my mind is, you know, wisdom is not something that is manufactured out of foolish moments. Wisdom is what is curated largely by being in deep relationship with people and by practicing thoughtful, intentional practices or, or work in the world, right? And so I feel curious about what is the impact of holding together foolishness that certainly Paul was addressing that there's just foolishness in the world and how do you hold together the critique of foolishness with also what Paul said that God will thwart the wisdom of the wise. And so I think my question that I bring to this, and, and I feel I'm, I'm not a Corinthian, I'm not a Pauline scholar. I don't study Corinth. I don't, you know, but I feel curious about how might that this passage, and we could get into sort of how the cross is a, is a foolish symbol and whatnot. Um, and the complications around that. But I, I feel curious about th this first part on foolishness and wisdom, how those two things really animate a, a Kairos moment in, in, the, in the house, right? That is, that is fortified by, by the Holy Spirit. So I, I, I bring curiosity to the passage. Mm, yeah. What I really noticed in returning to first Corinthians this time is in thinking about the community at Corinth. We know a little bit about them and biblical scholars know a little bit about them. And um, the Bible that I use, the new Oxford annotated Bible is fabulous because it has little descriptions um, yeah. at the beginning of different books of the Bible. And what it tells us about the community at Corinth is that Corinth itself had been a community that was destroyed by the Roman Empire in 146 BCE, before the Common Era. And then it was rebuilt in 44 BCE to be a place, a colony to which the Roman patricians, the elite, sent the surplus population from Rome, which uh -huh. was usually freed slaves and displaced peasants. So holding that context against these words from Paul is really interesting because it also says that the Corinthian community was the first urban center that Paul went to when yeah, he was yeah. starting his ministry, which is interesting that he went not to the city of the most elite people, but to an urban center where there were many people who had been a community of marginalized people. And I think your, um, your comment about the, the house is really interesting, especially to hold together with a lot of queer and transgender people's experiences of being kicked out of their house. Paul went and, and found a little house churches, which may not have been blood family, but actually 
communities of people who found each other after right. this place. So he's speaking to already kind of a chosen family that is having some disagreement. Like what this letter is actually in response to a prior letter. So it's almost like we're reading one half of the email. Yeah. Not to traumatize us with emails. Right. Email talk again. Yeah. Um, in this political moment. But so what I think is really interesting is in calling out wisdom and foolishness, what we can take from some of the context of the community at Corinth is that they were really buying into this idea of how to, how to kind of elevate themselves through the adoption of a particular form of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so here comes Paul to say, actually, you know, in his experience, to try and elevate yourself through that external means, you don't have to do that. You are already, he goes on in the very next verse, 26, to say, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, a.k.a. you, mm-hmm. to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Like, this community, too, doesn't need to seek external means to lift themselves up, that God has already chosen you as a community to really show the true depth of who God calls as beloved. Yeah, and what is interesting, too, is in verse 21, um, Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. So there's a sense where, you know, in verse 26 refers to the foolishness of creation. There is a parallel between the foolishness of our proclamation what Paul calls the foolishness of our proclamation, save those who are believe, save those who believe. And then there continues to be a parallel around, you know, proclaiming Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there continues to be a sort of flipping or queering, if you will, of wisdom and foolishness and a parallel between creation and Jesus, which sort of brings me back to the question of a theological question of then is what's being said here. Could we say that then God is in all things, which is a particular theological um, structure called panentheism. If God is in all things, if what Paul is writing and paralleling, Christ as foolishness and creation as foolishness, um, then is the wisdom that we are to embody already part of our structure, our created, our beloved structure? Mm. And is it that, to, to return to the house metaphor, is it that we've been so displaced, marginalized people have been so displaced from the house we are not really able to embody the depth of wisdom, the divine wisdom, the divine source of wisdom, because we've been so displaced by the house, by the by tradition or by the institution or, you know, whatever, whatever the house is for people. Yeah. Our own internal divinity has become, for some of us, and sometimes in some ways, our own stumbling blocks. Right. And I think that's true of the, this community at Corinth as well, that perhaps they're seeking external wisdom because they don't believe themselves to be enough or for the experience of trauma and marginalization 
has become for them something in the way of experiencing the depth of the message. And if the community makeup of Corinth are the displaced, right, of those who have been most vulnerable, most impacted, then it makes sense to think that even today, marginalized people tend not to trust their own intuitions because of multi-system oppressions. I feel curious about the context, you know, and then it makes me ask a second question of, what is Paul really saying? Is Paul actually affirming the full worth and dignity of these displaced people? And what does that do to our, um, our theological and our biblical imagination of who Paul is? Mm. Where would you look to find an answer to that question? Is Paul proclaiming the full worth and dignity? Well, this is where I would say we need to read more of Paul and we, we need to figure out what really is Paul saying, you know, because if you sit with Paul, I mean, a lot of people write Paul off, right? I don't like Paul because he was misogynist or whatnot. Is that true? You know, <laughs> I feel curious about Paul's letters and I feel curious about, you know, even in Galatians, it seems that there is, is it Galatians 3.28? Where, where the divisions of hierarchy get broken down. What's interesting is that what is happening here around the parallel between creation and Christ and foolishness and wisdom, a, a similar parallel gets talked about in Galatians around, you know, neither Jew nor Greek, nor free nor slave, whatnot. And it goes into gender. And so I feel curious about what's happening here there's been an imposition, I think, of a particular reading of Paul that has demonized Paul. Yes. And, you know, I, f- I feel curious about that. And I also feel curious about a, a new liberative reading of Paul that might actually create creative openings around resilience and resistance, right? I mean, if Paul went to the first urban center that had fallen from the Roman Empire, what does it say about the preferential option for the poor and displaced? And how might we actually read this piece as a liberative, really compelling notion of Paul making a preferential option for the poor, for the displaced, for the marginalized? Yeah, it almost as if in both the Galatians passage, which I love because it's so queer in my reading, that he sets up these dichotomies he sets up these dichotomies and then undoes them right. by the same hand, which from a larger theological point to me is what God does all the mm-hmm. time. And Jesus's life on earth was about upending the status quo and reminding us that where we stake our belief is not always the right place. Mm-hmm. And this phrase that you pulled forward that I want to circle back to is we proclaim Christ crucified. And then he has this dichotomy of it's been a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So there are several categories of people who just can't get over it. But your Messiah died. Yeah. Your Messiah wasn't just dead. He was crucified in a manner in which the Roman Empire uses crucifixion as a public display of who is considered foolish. As a rebel, as an enslaved person, that your Messiah died like that. And here, Paul is almost drawing his line in the sand, like, no, we proclaim that same crucifixion as God's wisdom. To me, that points towards a different reading of Paul than 
what I had assumed growing up with what I grew up with. Right, right. You know, I wrote off Paul because of the ways I saw Paul used against myself, other marginalized communities, et cetera. But what is interesting here to me in another redemptive and liberative reading is I believe marginalized people and communities have the capacity to have a nuanced reading of foolishness and theater and parody and to distinguish between the three. And here, I think Paul is doing something similar. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. You know, sometimes we don't sit with things long enough. And I think because the Bible has been weaponized against LGBTQ people, many of our siblings, our LGBTQIA siblings, have just said no to the Bible. I want to sort of name, like, there are some people who just can't engage in scripture and there has been irreparable harm done to our, our queer siblings. And for those of us who have the bandwidth to sit with things, it might be, it might be part of a queer virtue to sit with some of the scripture and to really rethink what's really going on here and how do we read Paul against himself to provide conditions of possibility for liberation for those who are looking for some sort of spiritual or theological grounding. Yeah, because the truth is, Robin, and I I take your point so well, the truth is the interpretations of Paul that would cause me to dismiss him were done as a tool of the empire. Right. To maintain an order of gender, an order of race and and marginalization of who's in, who can uh, of sort of a stabilized normative orientation, right? Yeah. So if we're able to sit with it and go back into that place of foolishness of unknowing, yeah, it to me is the way to pull the rug out from a reading of Paul that reinforces the status quo, but actually rather goes into the real or implied meaning of the text that has those readings of nuance and and marginalized experience to the very people Paul was first speaking. Yeah. Do you feel ready to move into the second reading of the text around yeah. a side of resistance? It feels yeah. like we're getting there. Yeah. A reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, The world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. As you 
heard this passage a second time, how does this text call us to resistance? I mean, there's, there's part of me that feels conflicted around the cross and crucifixion because we're, we're living in a day where black and brown bodies are executed by using state-sponsored violence. And in many respects, I think those public executions have been a stumbling block for us to be able to do the deep racial healing that, that we need to do. And it's been foolish on our government. It's been an act of foolishness on our government. And there's a part of me of wondering, how do you hold that complexity with what Paul is writing here? And how might destabilizing some of what Paul is writing and letting our current reality and our pressing social concerns inform our interpretation, how might that further complicate this particular piece of writing? I feel curious about that. I mean, I, th I think it does, it does call us to resist systems. And, and yet I feel curious on how best to do that. Mm. What about you? What's your, what's your sense about resistance? Yeah, I think bringing to this text uh, honesty and authenticity about the ways in which even for myself, the truth of crucifixion, both in Jesus's life and the ways in which our white supremacist culture has crucified so many black and brown people. I bring a resistance to seeing the liberative power of that. I resist myself internally and struggle in, in the same way that the disciples did, I think, in, in, leading, in the days leading up to Jesus's death even. And here we are in Lent in those same you know, pattern of days. Mm -hmm. How do we make meaning? How can we make meaning out of something that is so horrific? Mm -hmm. And I feel resistant in myself to extend that same meaning to other people's deaths. Because to your point around it, the meaning is that it, it shows the foolishness of the state right. and of the empire. Um, and I think there's a theological question that a lot of us wrestle with of what is the meaning of suffering? Mm -hmm. What purpose does it serve in our lives and especially systemic suffering? What is, what is the point? Is that something of God? Did God choose that for people? And I think there's something in this phrase that jumped out at me in the second reading. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation and it goes on to say, to save those who believe. I mean, I, I will say that to proclaim Christ crucified is crazy. Why would we stake any of our life on a story of a brown Palestinian Jew who was executed by, by the Roman Empire? Why would we do that? It seems foolish. And to return to the metaphor of the house... It's the spirit who blows through the house that generates and regenerates life. Mm. I'm reminded in terms of the proclamation, as we proclaim Black Lives Matter, 
I think we're told that's a foolish proclamation mm-hmm. by white supremacist culture. Yeah. And as we sit with and face the realities of the ways that is enacted on black, black and brown bodies, we continue to make that same proclamation. Mm-hmm. You can call us foolish, but we will continue to proclaim that until these systems are bended and mm-hmm. drastically overturned or reformed. And this passage to me, in terms of how we continue to resist, is not shying away from the things that others and a system that upholds the status quo would call foolish. That that is one act of resistance is to keep naming it. Yeah. Yeah, and how might the repetition of naming it come in the face of the foolishness? I feel like a deep sense of resistance is what we need. Um, And we can't do that work without a resilient spirit. And what Paul here is, I believe, inviting the community of Corinth to do is to unite together. They were separate houses. Mm -hmm. They had each learned of Jesus in different ways and through different teachers And then they had disagreements about how they were best going to enact that knowledge and wisdom and foolishness. And then here in this letter, Paul is saying, no, no, no. You together are resilient. God has put within you the very seeds with which to understand this message. You don't have to seek externally necessarily, but in your togetherness, that is, that is where Christ brings you together. And in this sense of resilience, I think, so often in facing political foolishness, it is the resilience of communities and going into the place of community that allows us to withstand the foolishness mm-hmm. that is going on around us. Yeah. It's good stuff. Do you want to move into our third reading? Yeah. Okay, a third reading. First Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Something popped up for me around this question of resilience when I reread this the third time, and it's verse 18, which says, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And to me, 
that that is a theology of resilience right there, which seems crazy making, <laughs> but there it is. And how do you see it as, as resilience? Well, because he juxtap- Paul juxtaposes um, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And it is those who are being saved. And, it's, and what's interesting is he uses a phrase, being saved, not ones who are saved, but ones who are being saved. So it sounds like it's a process. And what we know about resilience is that resilience is a process. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. And it seems to me that Paul is articulating here a process around salvation, the being of being saved, the doing and the being saved. And it's that that builds a container of resilience for me. Mm, Thank you. So the question I ask us to reflect on as we face and sit with this text a third time is, what vision for the work of liberation does this text offer? I mean, there's a sense where sitting with this has been a, a liberative moment. And I, and I wonder, I sort of go back to what I said earlier around how do we do the work of sitting with some of these texts and reimagine them in the context of marginalized people? And how might we, the liberative piece is offering a new reading to those, for those who have been weaponized by scripture. Mm, Perhaps this very podcast. Perhaps. I think that's so right, though. And sometimes it feels like the work of imagining marginalized voices into the text requires a bending of the text or a bending of the thought. And the truth is it does, it's right there. Right. Right there. Just looking a little more at the context helps you to see, wow, Mm -hmm. there were, there were so many people that Jesus came for and that Paul speaks to that were not the elite. And so to even face and see and uncover the dirt almost that has been put on these texts is liberative. Yeah. Another thing that spoke to me in hearing this a third time is this unspoken juxtaposition in some ways of, I don't think liberation is just a thought experiment. Right. And what Paul is saying here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The world did not know God through wisdom, which I think is really the heart of it, Mm -hmm. that you can't think yourself into this. Right. All the time that it's, and then the unspoken juxtaposition is the embodiment of this wisdom is the internalized sense of this wisdom is the knowledge as marginalized and displaced people, this wisdom or connection to God, internal divinity. And a vision for liberation here for me is that I really see liberation in a spirit of unknowing and openness to being moved, to being connected, to being in relationship that is not premised on, I have all the answers right away. Right. What brings up for me is, it says Jews demand signs, so external validation. Greeks desire wisdom, which is a sort of a disembodied thinking, you know, becoming thinking machines. But the implicit message here, I think about liberation, and you've touched on it a little bit, is a deeply embodied wisdom that I think Paul is pointing to, 
Jesus as the example. And then Jesus is executed for that, that deeply embodied wisdom. I think that's, that's the liberatory message of this piece. I think you have to be able to read between the lines and, and pick up the ways in which Greek dualism, that, that Paul is critiquing Greek dualism in this and the subordination of body to mind. But I mean, Paul has all sorts of like body issues, right? He's got a thorn in his flesh and whatnot. <laughs> um, but there is a return, a sort of an eternal return to this question of embodiment that doesn't get explicitly named, but I think, I think you can read that. Mm-hmm. Something you were saying about embodiment really struck me and how Paul himself is so imperfectly embodied mm-hmm. and even the words that he uses in the course of these letters are so imperfectly placed and not without their own stain of context that in which he's living. And yet there's, so it's both prizing the body and recognizing the difficulty of being embodied mm-hmm. is something I want to lift up as liberative because I think we're in a moment where there's some dichotomy, some binary being drawn mm-hmm. around sheer like almost an ideology of the body Mm. without always a recognition of bodies are weird man yeah sometimes i have a stitch in my side it feels like a thorn sometimes bodies fail without really knowing why they break they they break they shift they get sick they get tired man they do weird stuff that we don't even know how to control right right and what vision of liberation can be attained if we hold those two truths that the embodiment is beautiful and embodiment is weird. To me, there's something in that around how we also welcome others' embodiment. Mm. What Paul says here, which at first, when with my with my lenses of kind of trauma from Paul, when he says, "For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom." If I had just finished reading right there, I'd be like, "Well, that's messed up." Right. I try to be very sensitive to anti-Semitic nuances in these texts that people have interpreted as anti-Jewish. And so I was kind of like, oh, that's messed up. But then in 24, he says, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks. Right. Which there had been a huge question of, can non-Jewish people follow this Christ guy? And there's something here around bringing together different kinds of embodiment. Mm-hmm to be a Jewish person growing up in, in this time and being a Roman or Greek person growing up in this time was, was to have pretty different embodiments. Yeah. But here we're bringing them all together. And that to me is something where I think the kingdom of God comes to play. Yeah, and the other thing that raises up for me is this question of a community of radical difference. And could Paul be pointing toward that? This is why I think we need to read Paul against himself. With, with eyes that have attention to pressing social concerns and be able to extricate from our memory the ways that Paul has been weaponized against us. Mm-hmm. I mean, that takes courage and a lot of time and, and energy and effort. And, but, you know, this is a start. This is a start. What will you take with you today from this conversation about this text, this moment of Paul? So I've, I, I've had a very interesting day today. I um, have been sitting with a couple different scriptures. And so 
there's a part of me that is like, oh, why is the Bible animating my day today? And so now I'm sitting with the question of foolishness and wisdom and how might my call in doing public theology be deeply invested in embodied wisdom and really turn away from the foolishness that would otherwise sort of, you know, consume me and really cause me to not, not be committed to the deep social healing, you know, that I'm committed to. I'm taking away the foolishness of our proclamation. Not something I expected for today, but continue to be foolish in our proclamation. You know, I had a vision for this podcast a couple of months ago that what if we read the Bible together with different readers to see what wisdom it may have for us in our resistance and resilience and liberation work. And I worried that some might find that foolish. Mm. Why this? Why now? And it kept me from reaching out to people for conversation for a long couple of months. And I finally had to, without having read this text, (laughs) as deeply as you and I just did, say to myself, that doesn't matter. Maybe somebody will find it liberating. Maybe somebody will appreciate it. Mm -hmm. What I found over the course of just these first few conversations is again, that even if one person appreciates it, that's enough, but it's also getting back in touch with that deep source of wisdom that is Mm -hmm. embodied, that is internal and reminding ourselves that we don't have to be biblical scholars to have a meaningful conversation about a text. We don't have to be at the highest level of knowledge to find something here. And so I want to keep proclaiming foolishness and putting that out in the world if I feel that that is something God is calling me to. I issue that invitation to anyone who may be listening to this, uh, that the world needs your foolishness. Mm, That's a word. That's a word. Robin, thank you so much for engaging with me on this text with Paul, who can be so challenging to our communities. And yet here, I believe we have found a Paul that we would welcome into our house. Yeah, it's been great, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. We are so glad you joined us, and I hope you found strength for your journey. If this episode got you fired up, be sure to check us out online or on Facebook at More Light Presbyterian, mlp.org. Peace be with you until we meet again. Bye.